Good morning, y'all. It is good to be counting down the weeks to Christmas, the coming of the Lord. For those of you who were with us last Sunday, you know that we were uh, in a very specific study in Genesis chapter 3. In our Advent series, which you can see the title on the screen, we're looking at the hope of the gospel in four very distinct ages or periods of time. And actually, last week we began even before time began. We started looking at the great eternal decree of God, which we define like this, a single, eternal, internal act of God, whereby He secretly wills and orders all things, all things that take place in our world, unfolding within time and space. So we started by looking at that. Even before time began, God was at work planning out all things with a single purpose in mind. And then we briefly looked at uh, the fall in the garden, and then we looked at this one beautiful verse that is tucked into Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where right after the fall, immediately after the fall, God declares his intent to deal with the serpent and to rescue and restore his creation. So today we want to build on that foundation. We want to go and look at the hope of the gospel through the rest of the Old Testament. I'm only going to do the whole Old Testament this morning, so so don't worry about that. Um, But we're going to look at, at how that hope from Genesis 3.15, then carries on throughout the Old Testament, leading up to the first coming of Christ. Now, to do that, we're going to have to work backwards from the first century, back through biblical history, back to the time of the monarchy, to the time of the patriarchs. And before we do that, I want to ask this really key question. I want you to consider this. At the time of Christ's first coming, what were the expectations of Jews concerning their Redeemer? What were their expectations? If they knew about this promise in Genesis 3, and if they knew about the terms of the covenants that God had made with Abraham and with Moses and with David, what were they looking for as the time of Christ's birth drew near? The answer to those questions is much more complex than you might think. You've probably been taught an answer to those questions somewhere by somebody that goes something like this. Well, the Jews were looking for a political messiah. Someone who would come and drive the Romans out of Palestine and free the Jewish nation from Gentile oppression. And yes, there is some truth to that, but that is far too simplistic of an answer. When you really begin to dive deeply and study the Jewish sources, both from the intertestamental period and from the later Talmudic writings, the picture of the Messiah is actually very, very murky in the eyes of the thinkers of those days. And in fact, there are a ton of different opinions. Remember, the Hebrew Scriptures don't present uh, an explicit, fully disclosed, systematic concept of what we get. Okay, good. Messiah, very good. (laughs) Fill fill in the blank, right? Okay. (laughs) Alex just freaked out. So we don't get this really fully disclosed, uh, systematic concept of the Messiah. What we get are snapshots, right? Here and there, spring throughout the law and throughout the prophets and throughout the writings. We get these snapshots that when we piece them together, they become a really beautiful mosaic of who this deliverer will someday be. But when you look at the sources, the Jewish sources of the day, they will tell you that most Jews in the first century, leading up to the time of Christ, were actually not really focused on the identity of the Messiah as much as they were focused on the Messianic age. That was much more their focus. It's not so much about the man who ushers in the age, it's about the age itself, about this time of peace and prosperity and righteousness, this golden age 
that had been prophesied that would come to the land of Israel. That's what they were focused on. In fact, if you study even the Pharisees and the scribes, the concept of Messiah was almost always connected to an eschatological age. What we would call the end, end of days or what the, the prophets of old called the day of the Lord when God would come down and punish Israel's enemies and restore his kingdom on the earth. That's what they were focused on. So when the idea of the, uh, the Messiah would come up, the question was asked, well, has the Messianic age arrived? If so, well, then yes, the Messiah has come. But if we don't see the Messianic age, then how can we believe that the Messiah has come? And with that in mind, you can imagine why so many Jews in the first century struggled with the idea of Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah when they couldn't see the Messianic age being ushered in. In fact, Chaim Richman, who was a very well-known rabbi in Jerusalem today, up until recently he was the head of what they call the, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, literally preparing for the rebuilding of a third temple. He once made this comment in opposition to the claim of Christians that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He said this, he said, the state of the world will prove that Messiah has come. Don't you think that when Messiah arrives, it won't be necessary for his identity to be debated? For the world should be so drastically changed for the better that it should be absolutely incontestable. If the Messiah has come, why should anybody have any doubt? Hmm. So without a fully developed understanding of God's purpose in decreeing two distinct advents of Messiah, one to suffer and die and the other to conquer and judge, you can see why Rabbi Richman and so many other Jews are confused by Jesus. That's why it's important for us to understand the two advents and why we count down to Advent every year and even look forward. And we'll do this in our fourth week in the series. We'll look at the millennial kingdom, the eternal state. So you can see why people might be confused about this. So when the discussion among Jews did get around to the actual man who would usher in the Messianic age, what kind of man do you think they were looking for? What kind of man? Again, when you look at the sources, you find that expectations for Messiah are all over the map. Some Jews Messiah would be a political and military leader in the mold of a Judah Maccabee. They saw that. Others thought he would be a priestly figure, maybe even from the tribe of Levi. Some believe that he had to be a supernatural being. In fact, some people thought he might be an, an angel who would be incarnated, possibly even Michael, the archangel. Some Jews were squarely focused on Messiah as a prophet in the pattern of Moses. And we saw that perspective just recently as we've been going through the Gospel of John. We saw Jews continuing to come back to the idea, is this the prophet? Is this the one promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18? Remember, at this point, in the first century, Israel had been without a prophetic voice for more than 400 years. So people longed to have that prophetic voice back in the land. Still others dreamed that Messiah would be a powerful king in the Davidic tradition, a king who would drive out, by the way, both Rome and Herod, who they saw as an imposter, and once again make Israel the most powerful nation in the Near East. There's even some evidence to suggest that there was at least one group of Jewish thinkers in the first century that believed there had to be two messiahs. First a priestly one, and then a royal one, a king. And of course, that makes a little bit more sense to us on this side of things, right? They're getting closer to the truth. And then sadly, some Jews, and this is really, really prevalent today, some Jews have given up watching for Messiah altogether. 
believing that too much speculation on the subject of Messiah is dangerous because all it does is really create a sense of false hope. Finally, there always was and still is today those who believe that the coming of Messiah depends upon the spiritual condition in Israel itself. That by, spiritual, by the spiritual condition, they can actually call Messiah to come. They believe that Messiah will come only when the land is filled with righteousness and with goodness and not until then. And of course, folks who believe that are going to be waiting forever. Are they not? Now, so lots of interesting expectations, lots of different opinions. We do know something about expectations from the New Testament record. Some Jews we know were eagerly watching for Messiah. Recall how we learned just recently in our study of John. John chapter 1, we have Philip running to his friend Nathaniel and saying this, We have found the one who Moses wrote about in the law and also in the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So at least Philip and Nathaniel were watching. And then three chapters later, the woman at the well, who's not even a Jew, by the way, but a Samaritan, she says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming. So between Genesis 3.15 and all of these different expectations for Messiah in the first century, there's only about 4,000 years of history that we have to work through. 4,000 years of history where God was continuing to unfold his eternal decree within time and space. And we should know this is one of the reasons why God's decree is so essential to the story of Christ's coming. Think about this for a second. How are all of God's promises to his people possible unless God is utterly sovereign over everything? I mean, there's a ton of promises in there. How can all those things come true if God is not utterly sovereign? How does a plan as complex as the Old Testament, and it's complex, come together unless God is in full control of the lives of human beings in every single decision, choice, and event? This is one of the things that makes the Bible so different from every other piece of literature in the ancient Near East. It's one thing to write down a historical record. There's good historians throughout history, right? We have people that have written that down. But it's a totally different thing to be able to accurately predict the results of history. That makes the Bible unique, amen? So without sovereignty, predictive prophecy is impossible, it can be thwarted by the will of man, right? By the choices and decisions of man. Without sovereignty, you cannot prophesy accurately. So let's do a little bit of review from last Sunday, and then we're going to plow through the rest of the Old Testament. Are you ready? Synchronize your watches. All right. After the fall, and this is good news, we saw that God did not just abandon Adam and Eve. He had every right to strike them dead, but he didn't. He called them to account for their sin in his justice, right? He placed a series of disciplinary curses into their lives, but then he also provided them and us with a great hope. And that's where Genesis 3.15 comes into play. We're going to take a quick look at it again. There it is. Here's what it says. It says, I, now who's the I? This is God, God speaking. I will put enmity, or hostility is a more common word we would use, between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, serpent, and her seed. And so the reference here is primarily collective in nature. Both the serpent and the woman serve as what we call federal heads of their respective descendants, the offspring of Satan versus the offspring of God's chosen people. 
And it's prophesied here, God will make sure that it comes true, that there will be no peace between these two groups. There's only hostility and war. And again, notice that it's God who puts that hostility in place for his purposes. The verse goes on. He shall bruise or crush you on the head. Who's the he there? The seed of the, the, seed of the woman will crush. That's the better understanding of this. You on the head and you, serpent, shall bruise or strike him on the heel. So there it becomes particular and individual. First it was collective and plural. Now it's particular and individual. It's prophesied that there will be a particular seed of the woman who will crush Satan, while he can only manage to sort of nip at the heel of this unique individual. As I shared last week, this verse is known as the Proto-Evangelium. It's, it's known as the first gospel. It's the first prophecy in Scripture of a Redeemer that's promised to come. As some have called this the mother promise, right? From which all other prophecies flow. There's no exaggeration to say that the entire Old Testament is the unfolding or development of this first gospel in Genesis 3.15. So it's very, very important. So in spite of the fall, which of course God had also ordained, it wasn't a surprise to him, in this verse we're given the first sign of hope that God is going to do three amazing things. Number one, someday he will destroy evil completely. That is good news. Secondly, he will renew and restore all things in creation back to their original very good condition. And three, he will make a way for himself, for God to dwell with his people once again. All three of those things, amazing promises here. That makes Genesis 3.15 really the, the fountainhead of the entire Old Testament's eschatological hope. And it's all rooted in this concept of a, of a promised redeemer. Some people have said that the the promise of a coming head crusher, which is much more manly. <laughs> the coming of the head crusher. And if you understand the basic promise laid out here, you begin to see that the Old Testament is not just a collection of unre unrelated stories and writings, but it's an unfolding record of this warfare between these two seeds. And as I tried to stress last Sunday, this warfare is still happening today. We talked about it, spiritual warfare, putting on the armor of God, the, the war between the spirit and the flesh. There's a ton of warfare in the life of a Christian. It's still going on. You and I are a part of it. So never forget, we are not just passive onlookers of the biblical narrative. We don't stand back and say, oh, this is a nice little story. We are actually living it, right? Until Christ returns, until the eternal state is established, we are a part of the biblical story. You are not passive outsiders. You're a part of it even today, right? As we wait for Jesus to come back and we say, come Lord Jesus, right? Okay, let's move on to the rest of Genesis now because this is really the key. So having been cast out of the garden and now traveling east out of Eden, Adam and Eve make good on their God's directive to be fruitful and to multiply. And it's very likely that Eve thought that her first son, whose name was Cain, would be the head crusher. It makes sense. This is the way we tend to think. God makes a promise. We figure it's going to happen the next day, right? We just have a tendency to do that. But Cain is anything but that. We find out that Cain's heart was not for Yahweh. He is of the seed of the serpent, right? He is the first murderer, just as Jesus will say later that Satan's entire nature is as a murderer. So he's of the seed of the serpent. 
So humanity's first two hopes for redemption, both Cain and Abel, are now gone. And the narrative tells us that Seth, Eve's thirdborn, who's a replacement for Abel, he might be the head crusher, but no, he also dies. Now, Seth is very important because he becomes the foundation for the seed of the woman moving forward, but he dies. Next comes Enoch, and the hope is built up again. Maybe Enoch will be the head crusher, but guess what? He is, it says, by the way, he walked faithfully with God, so he's a good candidate to be the Redeemer, but then God takes him away. And then as we open Genesis 6, another hope appears through the line of Seth and Enoch comes a man named Noah. So you know I was going to do a timeline today, right? All right, it's not filled in yet, but it will. By the way, the year 4,000 for Adam, we're not sure. There's some things that we can't measure, but it's, there's, I've seen some pretty good timelines that tell us 4,000 B.C. And of course, Noah, we, we're pretty sure, was born right around the year 2950 B.C. So we have a pretty good date for that. So we have Noah. And interesting, the words of Noah's father seem to imply that at least he thinks that Noah is going to be the one to reverse the curse. Listen to what he says, Genesis 5, 28 and 29. His name is Lamech, right? He called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So the reader of Genesis is like, okay, here we go. We got the guy who's going to do this. It's going to be Noah. So God looks out across the earth. He sees this breath of wickedness, and he acts again according to his decree to send a great flood. But of course, it's imperative that God uh, 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 spare the, the redemptive line in this flood. And so Noah is his guy to do that. And in the midst of this rampant immorality, Noah stands tall. We know the story, right? He builds this, this ark, which seems crazy to everybody. According to God's perfect specifications, he loads up his family. He brings two animals of every kind. And as we know, they all survived the great flood. Miracle upon miracle, right? So Noah must be the, the head crusher, right? He's the guy to restart everything. He has got to be the one. But he's not. Noah had been faithful. And it does say that he had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But like so many of us, Noah falls prey to temptation and disqualifies himself to be the Redeemer. From that point, Genesis then traces the genealogy of Noah's three sons, and one of them, Shem, not Ham, not Japheth, but Shem is going to be the one to carry the seed of the woman. And he is the transition into the, one of the great chapters, one of the most important chapters that you and I need to understand in the Old Testament, Genesis 12 and the introduction of who? Of Abram or Abraham, right? So this brings us to one of the most important concepts in the whole story of the seed and the Redeemer. And that is the Abrahamic covenant. Very important. The promises that God makes to Abram are incredibly extensive. I want to look at two in particular. First of all, we have Genesis 12. I'll put it on the screen. I'm going to make it really easy for you guys today. You can just look at the screen or you can look in your Bibles. So what does Genesis 12 say? God promises, I will make you a great nation, Abram. And I will bless you and make your name great. And I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's all. Just all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then down in verse 7, to your descendants, I will give you this land, the land of promise, right? Canaan. Okay, then Genesis 22 says this. We looked at this briefly last week. This is after, after Abram's faithfulness and being willing to sacrifice his, his only son, Isaac. 
It says, indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. They'll be given victory. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So we basically summarize the, the promises in the Abrahamic covenant in three general categories. We have seed, and we have blessing, and we have land. And in those three things, you see the shadow beginning to form of the reversal of the curse that was laid upon Adam and Eve. Now, here's the tricky part in looking at the Abrahamic covenant. Who is included in this concept of the seed of Abraham? Who is God referring to? It's not as simple as you might think. So I'm going to give you three ways, three things that we need to look at here. First of all, there's a plural collective seed involved here in a nationalist sense. That's the physical or the genetic descendants of Abraham. Physical and genetic. That's reflected in God's promise to make Abraham a great nation and the father of many nations. And of course, it's that genetic bloodline that the Jewish people in the first century were counting on to save them, right? How many times have we studied this in the New Testament? They were counting on their genetic bloodline, the physical descendants of Abraham. This is why Paul takes such pains in his letter to the Romans to deal with that false notion that a genetic bloodline can save you. It's false. It can't. So there's the physical. Then there's the spiritual aspect of Abraham's seed. Remember the great declaration in Genesis 15, 6. It says that Abraham believed God. He believed God. When God gave him promises, he believed God. And it was credited to him as what? As righteousness. Such an important verse. Genesis 15, 6. That is the Old Testament version of justification by faith alone. We see it right there in Genesis. So we talk about Abraham as the father of faith, right? And so spiritually, the seed of Abraham extends beyond the physical Jewish race to all types of people who trust in God by faith alone. This is the spiritual aspect. There is a physical, ethnic Israel, but there's also the spiritual, those who trust in God by faith. Paul tells us, right, in the book of Romans, that not all genetic Israel is spiritual Israel, correct? He tells us very clearly, because they trust in their genetics, not in God. So he says in Galatians 3, it's those who are of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. So there's a physical and a spiritual aspect. Then the third, and this is really important in this concept of the Redeemer, there is a singular seed that he speaks of, a singular seed. And you see that in the Genesis 22 passage. In your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in case you're wondering about this, Paul picks up on this in Galatians 3. I'll put the verse on the screen. Galatians 3.16. Paul comments on this verse. He says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Physical, spiritual, and singular, which is the head crusher, which is Christ. So we see this line being drawn in Genesis from the head crusher, right, in Genesis 3.15, to Seth, to Enoch, to Noah, to Shem, and now to Abraham. And from Abraham to this singular seed, who, by the way, is still far off in the distance, right? Thousands of years away still. But think about this for a second. In light of that truth, 
Is it any wonder? And we just looked at this in John chapter 8. Jesus is talking to this Jewish crowds, and he says, your father Abraham longed to see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's because of this line, this very line, the seed from Abraham 2,000 years later to Jesus himself. Now, Jesus is, of course, the only singular person in all of human history who qualifies to be a blessing to all families of the earth and a blessing to all nations of the earth. But as we say that, think about this for a second. Obviously, we're not talking about every single person in every single family in every single nation. And we know that because the Bible's already told us that there are two categories of people, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? And the seed of the serpent are not going to be blessed. And then Genesis 12 also told us that some people are going to be cursed by God because they curse Abram. They curse the seed of the woman. So those folks all fall under the seed of the serpent. So like we see so many times in the Bible, when you see that word all, oftentimes what it means is all types of people or all kinds of people, not every single person. So it's important to recognize that these references in Genesis 12 and 22 point again beyond the boundaries of genetic Israel to all types of nations and all types of families in those nations and all types of people in those families, not just Jews. The Messianic promise, and it goes all the way back to Genesis 12. It amazes us sometimes that the Jews miss this, right? It was always meant to go beyond the boundaries of ethnic Israel to include Gentiles as well. And by the way, most of us here are probably fully Gentile. So are we grateful for this? We are, right? That all, going all the way back to Genesis 12 and 22, we were included in this messianic promise. Okay, before we leave Abraham, one last thing I want to point out. For the most part, Abraham is a pretty faithful guy, right? He generally responds well to God's instructions, but we also know he made some pretty foolish choices, don't we? He lied twice about his relationship with Sarah in order to spare his own life. And even worse, his attempt to hurry along God's plan, right, by sleeping with Hagar to produce an heir complicates all of Israel's history, even to this day. It complicated it because he wanted to accelerate God's plan. So we know he's an imperfect person, but here's the thing, and this is so refreshing and so encouraging to people like me. From an earthly perspective, these sinful choices put the promises of God in danger. God made promises, but by these silly choices, by these sinful choices, Abram put the promises of God in danger. But alas, God is sovereign, right? Even over the sinful actions of his people. And because of his eternal decree, which no man, not even Abraham, can thwart with any choice or any decision, because of his sovereignty, his plan for the head crusher and the redemptive line continued, overriding and transcending the foolishness of Abram. By the way, he does that in our lives as well. Isn't that comforting? Okay, so we're moving fast. With a sigh of relief, we get to Genesis 21, and at the very appointed time, not Abram's time, but at God's appointed time, the promised physical and spiritual seed of Abraham was born in the person of Isaac. Very good. So we'll put some dates up here. Okay? So Abraham, we know, right around 2165 B.C., and then the generations, the great patriarchs, go down in that line. And very quickly, conflict rises up between Isaac 
and his mother and Abraham's other seed, Ishmael. And God instructs Abraham to send Ishmael and his mother away. God would bless Ishmael and make him a great nation too. He's the father of the Arab people. But as Jesus said himself, salvation is from the Jews. So that point becomes very, very clear. So as God had decreed from eternity past, it was Isaac who was the son of promise, and it's Isaac who was in the genetic line of the Redeemer to come. Now, later, God would confirm the very same promises he'd given to Abraham and uh, to Isaac as well. And like his father, Isaac would put the seed promise at risk in a number of ways, including lying, just like his dad. So what we begin to see is a pattern that continues to this day, that God uses flawed people to accomplish his will. Man, I mean, I look around, look at all of us. We are flawed people. God uses sinners to accomplish his decreed purpose, even sinners like you and I. It is so amazing. Imagine if we had a Bible where every single person God used was just perfect. How discouraging that would be. How frustrating. Like, we'll never live up to that. But these folks were flawed. So God uses a flawed Abraham. He uses a flawed Isaac. Isaac's not going to be the head crusher. We know that for sure. Neither will his treacherous son Jacob be the head crusher. In fact, Jacob is even more of an example of how God uses imperfect people to fulfill his sovereign plan. Jacob repeatedly deceives his brother Esau. He deceives his father. He grabs hold of the family birthright by deception. He gets the blessing of the patriarch by deception. Jacob's an awful human being. And even as he grows older, he continues to demonstrate a lack of character. He favors Joseph and then Benjamin over his other sons, and that brings about disastrous results. And yet, by divine election, God chooses Jacob and rejects Esau as the seed through whom the blessings of God would pass. And as Jacob's narrative ends, it appears that maybe Joseph is the promised redeemer, right? In fact, we see Joseph actually rescuing the seed of Israel from starvation in Egypt. So Joseph's got to be the guy, right? But neither Joseph nor the eldest son of Jacob, who's Reuben, are designated as the seed through whom the blessing will come. That privilege is given to Judah. Judah. It says the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. Now, Judah's an awful character as well. I mean... (laughs) Joseph, again, in our human perspective, we said Joseph's the guy. No, it's Judah. God has decreed it to be so. Par for the course, God sees fit to work through a man like Judah who has very little character and integrity, and also through Tamar, who is what? A Gentile woman, a Gentile woman, in order to preserve the seed of Abraham. So we close the book of Genesis, and you know what? Here's the thing. Sometimes we forget about this because we tend to read all the books of the Bible, but Genesis in particular is all these sort of semi-connected stories, but it's, a, it's also to be read as a whole. It closes and we're like, that is not what we expected. It should not close that way. Since the moment in the garden, the reader would expect to see the head crusher arrive. The promise was in Genesis 3. Where is it in Genesis 50? It's not there. It's not to be. And I think this is very, very typical and a really good lesson for us about how we tend to read the Bible. We tend to read it thinking that, well, we understand timetables, right? In our human perspective, how we would work things out if we were God. And even today, we're like, well, why isn't Jesus coming back? 
It's been 2,000 years. This has got to be about the time, right? Guys, stop. <laughs> stop. How, I mean, it's, okay. it's not a bad thing, by the way, to say, Lord, come. We would love to have you be here. But listen, all things have been decreed. Times have been set. Places have been set. Events have been set. This type of thing and what we're experiencing right now, even as we see the world go a little bit crazy, and it is, it's a call to patience. And it's a call to greater trust in God's sovereign plan. His timetable, not ours. Amen? Now look at the situation as Genesis closes. God's people are far from the land that he had promised to Abraham. And each person in this, so far in the story has not been the redeemer, not been the head crusher. And evil is marching on. Again, we, we ask, why, Lord? The serpent is busy. At every step, his goal has been to prevent the coming of the promised seed. And then think about this. You begin to wonder, what were the angels thinking? The angels watching, right? Because the angels aren't privy to everything, the secret will of God. They're watching and going, huh? <laughs> right? Unless you're God, this all seems very, very confusing. But here's the thing. We, the readers of Genesis, we learn a really valuable lesson as we step back and look at the overall plan. First, we see the futility of man, but second, we see the grace and the sovereignty of God at work. The truth is, if Genesis 3.15 is ever to be fulfilled, it will only happen because God is in control and because He's gracious and long-suffering. True? Okay, so that's a lot on Genesis. How are we doing? We'll accelerate the rest of it, I promise. But that, guys, and I know Ross, Ross is back there. Ross would give a hearty amen. If you don't know Genesis, the Bible doesn't make sense. It is so foundational. So know it, study it, read it. Okay, let's accelerate. Back to our timeline. Moses. By the way, just as a, a framework, God was so gracious to give, to give us big numbers with certain guys. Abraham around 2,000. Moses around 1,500. David around 1,000. It's great. Just let that help you in your head. All right. The the book of Exodus opens with God's people in slavery in Egypt, right? And although there is much to compliment in the life of Moses, he has a number of failures on his record as well, right? Again, more sinners being used in God's plan. And as it turns out, Moses is not the head crusher either, but he does play a huge role in being a part of the spiritual seed of Abraham. He helps to unveil important pieces of the puzzle as to the identity of who this Redeemer will be. First of all, he foreshadows in what we call a typological way this office of prophet, that the Redeemer will be a prophet. In fact, Moses actually says it in Deuteronomy 18 that God will someday raise up a prophet like me. So he foreshadows that. Second, he foreshadows the redemptive role of Abraham's seed by delivering Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And so the Exodus becomes this model and a type of salvation that Christ will someday come and execute on the cross, releasing us from slavery to what? To sin. So the Exodus becomes a great foreshadowing and a type of the salvation that the Redeemer will execute. Third, God establishes His law through Moses, right? Designed to set His people apart from the surrounding nations. That law that was given to Moses would practically guide God's people, including specific instructions on worship and on how to atone for sin. And most importantly, we find out later, the law would serve as an instructor 
or a tutor for the people, showing them that they need the Redeemer of Genesis 3.15, that they can never accomplish it in their own strength. They need the one true Lamb who will take away their sin forever. So Moses, who, by the way, is from the tribe of Levi, not Judah, is not physically in the line of Messiah, but he has huge spiritual ramifications that come out of his life. So Deuteronomy closes with the death of Moses and the passing of the mantle to who? Joshua. Now, Joshua is a guy you can get behind. I mean, if you want a candidate for a head crusher, Joshua is a good choice. Because remember, he is tasked with fulfilling one of the biggest promises of the Abrahamic covenant, which is leading God's people into the land. And Joshua is one of the very few Old Testament figures where he hasn't been engaged in some type of gross sin. So you're like, Joshua must be the guy. But guess what? Guess what? Even his story ends on a somber note. As great a leader as Joshua was, he was unable to cut off the bondage to sin that his people were engaged in. And Joshua dies. And with him, the national leadership transitions to a judge's model. Remember, God raises up a series of judges, not because they're great people. They're not. But they are able to lead God's army to basically fight off the surrounding nations. And Israel falls into great wickedness, right? The natural outworking of what the Scripture says, everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. It's chaos. It's anarchy. Everybody's making up their own moral code. And so you get what you get. God's last appointed judge is Samuel, who functionally transitions the nation from a theocracy, led by God, to what? A monarchy. The people demand that Samuel appoint for them a king to lead them. And they, what's, the, what's the motivation behind that? So we can be like every other nation. God is so, must have been so offended by this. But God says, all right. right. Like a parent that says, all right, that's really what you want. Here you go. And God gives them who? Saul is a king over Israel. Now you might expect, all right, the first king of Israel, this is going to be amazing. He's the head crusher. He's the redeemer. But it's Saul. And almost immediately, he shows that he is a deeply unfaithful man, selfish man, and he's ultimately rejected by God and killed on the battlefield. The story's not going well. I mean, honestly, you look at it and you're like, wow, this is, this is quite the roller coaster ride. Well, that brings us to the man who plays the next largest role after Abraham, right? We have King David. Let's put him up there. There he is. David comes to power right around the year 1015. BC. So David's story is at first woven in Saul's story, right? He slays Goliath, he plays the harp, and then to the surprise of everybody, including his own father, he's anointed king over Israel. Now, how can a boy king become the redeemer? How can the boy king be the head crusher? Interestingly, this is when we hear the term Messiah, we often think that this flows throughout the Old Testament. It actually doesn't. It's during David's time that the term Messiah begins to sort of take hold in Israel. It's a title that comes from the Hebrew verb to anoint. And we see this word anointing being laid on, Dan, uh, on David some 10 different times in the Old Testament. David is pronounced to be God's anointed. But David is not the promised Messiah. He is a type of the Messiah to come, but he's not the head crusher. But he is God's anointed. And so that word begins to sort of take hold in the land of Israel. Like so many before him, 
David has great promise, but he falls into horrific sin. Some of the worst sins you can imagine, right? Adultery and murder. Not only is he disciplined for those things, but later he also suffers for passive leadership as a father. He fails to execute justice when his own son rapes his daughter. Awful, awful stuff in the life of David. And yet the Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart, right? So it's really, really challenging, right? But what grace God shows to have a man like David. He knows David's heart. He knows that that David loves Yahweh with all of his heart, and yet he's got this track record, right? But God gives him military victories. His name becomes known far and wide. But most importantly, this man, this sinner, so if you're out there and you're like, God could never use me, wake up. This awful sinner, God makes a covenant with him. 2 Samuel 7, look at some of the terms of the Davidic covenant. God says to David, I will raise up your descendants after you. That is that seed again, right? Descendant. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. It's a long time. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom, David, sorry, my bad. Your house and your kingdom, David, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Is that three forevers? It is. Wow. Imagine getting that promise. Now, Obviously, David can't live and rule forever. He's a human being, right? So there has to be a reference to one who will come sometime in the future who, yes, will be a physical descendant of David, but somehow eternal in nature. How's that work? So the identity of the head crusher now is further defined. It's narrowed down in the days of David. Could he be both human and divine? The implications of this covenant are extraordinary. And we need to recognize this. There is huge hope built into this prophecy. God has an eternal plan for his people that will run through a specific tribe, right? We had Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and now David. And with the promise becoming more specific, it is easy to see why the Jewish people began latching on to this idea of an anointed one, a Messiah. That began to express the expectations of the Jewish people. Now, who's the one who's going to build the house? It's David's son Solomon. Right out of the promise of 2 Samuel 7. Is Solomon the Redeemer? (laughs) Here we go again. Right? It's so sad because Solomon is set up for greatness. He's given all the wisdom he'll ever need, and then he promptly goes out and violates every tenet of what a king of Israel is supposed to be and flushes it all away. It's his failed leadership and his failure as a father that then is going to lead to the division of God's kingdom on earth. Yikes. Second second timeline. Kingdom splits in two in year 930 BC. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But God has a plan. He's not surprised by this. It's all been decreed. So where are we now in the story of God's Redeemer? It actually looks messier now than it ever has. More confusing. The angels are scratching their heads. What's happening right now? And the Redeemer is still 900 years away, by the way. 
But God's plan hasn't been frustrated, not by the people's demand for a king, not by the sins of the kings that he's put in power. Each person has accomplished exactly what God wanted him to do. But what's next? The tension returns. Now the kingdom is fragmented. How is evil ever going to be destroyed if the kingdom is divided? There's no hope for any king in the south, ever. There's very little hope of the kings in the south either. And as in the time of the judges, God's people in this vacuum of leadership began to spin down again, spiral downward into idolatry and all kinds of spiritual adultery. But God has a plan. He has a plan. He's going to send prophets to these idolatrous people. And they will call the people back to faithfulness and warn them of the consequences of their constant spiritual adultery. And in these prophetic voices, God is going to use those opportunities to give us more data and more information about the identity of the head crusher. I'll mention just a few of them, the most important ones here. They're all over the place. Depending on how you count them, three, four hundred plus prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the identity of Christ. But Isaiah declares, here's a pretty specific one, he'll be born of a virgin. Ooh, that's pretty tough. He'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? Wait, God with us. Interesting. He says a child will be born, so the Redeemer will be a physical human person, And yet, in the very same breath, Isaiah says he'll also have these divine titles. Almighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So is he God, or is he a man, or is he he both? He'll certainly be a king. The government will be on his shoulder, Isaiah prophesies. But it's a very unique government. He says there'll be no end to it. Oh, there's that forever concept again, right? That aligns back with what he said to David in 2 Samuel 7. And Isaiah confirms Samuel's report This Redeemer will sit on the throne of David and establish peace, justice, and righteousness forevermore. So these prophecies are starting to overlap, right? But we have confirmation that he'll be eternal in nature. But then Isaiah also has shocking news. This eternal God-man, right? This this person who's both God and man is going to have to suffer greatly. Now that makes no sense. That makes no sense. If you're king, if you're divine, you don't have to suffer. But this this servant of the Lord is going to suffer greatly. It's a shocking report. And in some way, Isaiah reports that he's going to be a a substitute for sinning human beings, that he will be crushed for our iniquities. How is that possible? So even as the identity of the head crusher is being narrowed, other questions get raised, right? Other questions get raised. And then we're given very specific details 700 years before the first advent of Christ. And by the way, you see that line there. This is all the period that God was sending prophets to his people over hundreds and hundreds of years to get their attention, to say this is the one who will come. 700 years before the first coming of Christ, Micah drops the name of the birthplace of this child that's to be born. And it's not Jerusalem. It's not some big place. It's this little town in Judea, right? Bethlehem. Not only that, that Micah also declares what the others had said. He says, this one to be born in Bethlehem has roots that go back to eternity. In Hebrew, to the days of immeasurable time. Wait, hold on a second. How is that possible? That a physical human being has roots in eternity? 
And finally, just one more mention. Zechariah adds two fascinating facts about this Messiah. One is very mundane. Someday he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. <laughs> oh, okay, we'll watch for that. But the other one's very foreboding. He adds to the voice of Isaiah saying that this God-man, this eternal being who will be born in time and space will be pierced for our transgressions. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle, isn't it, right? As I said, it's, a, it's these snapshots that can be pieced together as a beautiful mosaic if you see the truth, but it's a bit of a puzzle. And at first glance, I got to tell you, it, it appears to be filled with contradictions. Think about this. How can a being be both human and divine? How is it they can be from eternity, yet physically rooted in time and space? How can he be both fierce at one moment and so humble at another? How can he be a ruler, a king, and yet suffer for people? This head crusher is said to be both a lion and a lamb. How is that possible? And by the time we close the canon at the end of Malachi, with all the data we're given to us now, over 4,000 years of human history, we see that the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 can only be one person, one very unique person. And that's where we get to pick up next Sunday. In the meantime, friends, let's rejoice today and let's praise God for his kindness towards us. Think about this. Even before he created our world, he had in mind a plan and a purpose to redeem you and I. You're part of the story. I hate to tell you, you're part of the story. It's actually good news. To redeem us from the curse of sin that Adam had brought upon us so many years ago, he decreed your redemption before the foundations of the world were laid. And yeah, the head crusher is going to destroy evil someday, and that is a great hallelujah. And if you're found in Christ this morning, you can be certain that someday you will live in the presence of God for all time. That's a great promise. From eternity past to the Garden of Eden to all the centuries of God's people living under this old covenant in expectation of what would come. What would this messianic age look like? What type of man will usher it in? Never forget that God has been actively shaping and directing all of it every single moment for his glory and for your good. Never forget that. May he be praised in your life today and forevermore. Amen? Let's pray together.